Hey everyone. Okay, so for today's episode, I am going to share with you some of my experience as a post-adoption caseworker so you can understand a unique perspective because a lot of people who become adoptive parents never are even assigned a post-adoption case manager and a lot of people don't even quite know what that is or how they get assigned. So I wanted to give you my perspective. I'm going to walk you through what post-adoption services are and why it's good to have a post-adoption case manager when I first started and what that was like for me and what the experiences of a new person straight out of college thrown into social work um, and needing to be the person people kind of rely on for big, big issues. I will share with you some of the big mistakes that I made and how I felt like I might have ruined certain kids' lives simply by intervening with them and how I dealt with that. And finally, I will share with you some of the biggest lessons that came out of going in for home visits, meeting with parents, and meeting with my supervisors who were so good when I came to them and said, I think I ruined this child's life. So hopefully you can learn from my experiences and mistakes. Let's do this. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Okay, so when I became a case manager, I was a post-adoption case manager, which basically meant that I was, the kids that I had my caseload were already adopted. And what I interpreted as a breakdown of the system was that not every child that gets adopted gets immediately assigned a post-adoption caseworker. And I thought that was the reason for a lot of the issues. A lot of the families that were on my caseload, they had their child adopted for a year, a couple years, and it wasn't until things got unmanageable or they wanted to give the child back literally that they were given my number and they said, you know, here's a post-adoption case manager that can kind of help you. And so I was always thinking, why don't you just give them the post-adoption case manager as soon as they're walking out of the courthouse so that they have that resource. But what I found out was actually that a lot of families don't want a, a case manager. They've gone through the whole foster care thing. They've dealt with investigators in their home. They've dealt with caseworkers constantly having to, you know, oblige them and have them investigate their home and everything that they do. And they just want to be a parent. They just want to move forward with this child as part of their home and they don't want any services. So that made a lot of sense to me. But I I felt like a lot of these families, if they were given more resources, would have done better and wouldn't have gotten to such a point where they felt like they were at the end of their rope. Um, because many of us know that when you are having a child in foster care, you have a bunch of resources at your disposal. You have the state, which the child is officially in the custody of the state. You have monetary support. You might have transportation if the child needs to get to a certain appointment. 
Um, you have somebody like a case manager that's setting up therapist appointments for you or doctor's appointments. So you are able to rely on the state heavily if you need to for all of those supports. And as soon as you sign on the dotted line, you have to do all that. Like a typical parent of any child, you know, you have to set up all the therapy appointments. You, I had plenty of parents on my caseload that had to take time off of work so that they could go to family therapy and maybe they never realized that they were going to have to go through family therapy or attachment therapy and they didn't know that they were going to have to take work off. So not only can it be a huge burden um, of time, it can be a huge burden of resources. You could lose wages. So there's just a lot of things to think about. And a lot of these parents didn't even know to fight for monetary benefits like adoption assistance, which can follow you after foster care if you know how to advocate for those things. So I understand why parents don't want any services um, and, and aren't necessarily hooked up with post-adoption services right out the gate. That was my situation uh, in Vermont, but maybe in other states you do get hooked up with post-adoption services right away. And I think in some states there might not even be post-adoption services. So you run the whole gamut depending on, of course, where you are adopting out of. But what a post-adoption caseworker does is they can hook you up with services. So I had a lot of people on my caseload that they needed their kid to go see a psychologist or they needed community behavioral help or they needed a mental health counselor or they needed swimming lessons. And I was able to get them connected to those types of services. I could sometimes access like post-adoption funds for a child, even if they didn't have adoption assistance and I was able to give them the, those funds to be able to do some of those things like enrichment activities, possibly like horseback riding lessons or something like that. I was able to find those funds for them. I did home visits. So I went into the home and I actually took the child out. Like I would take the child out for an hour or two hours and we would just go do an activity or I would do an activity in the home, whatever was more helpful for the parenting. So I was able to do that and I spent some time with the parents as well, understanding their situation, what they needed, where they were at. And I was able to offer them some therapeutic parenting techniques. So often they would tell me, you know, the struggles of the month because I usually saw them once a month. And then I would tell them, you know, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Um, recommend literature to them, recommend services. And a lot of times it was just listening because these parents just hadn't been listened to in so long. Like it was amazing that nobody ever heard their struggles of like what it was like to adopt these kids, uh, how much they had to deal with with foster kids, how much they had to deal with the bio parents, or maybe they're still dealing with the bio parents. Um, maybe some of these parents had like, fertility issues or there was a reason why they weren't able to have their ideal family or the family that they wished that they had and maybe they are still grieving that like there's so much to find out about these families and if you I noticed a lot of my time as a case manager was just giving them the time to talk so that was um, an, a service that a post-adoption case manager would provide and I highly suggest that adoptive parents take advantage of these services if they, if they have them available to them. 
even even though it is a check-in once a month, it's a resource. And I had a lot of parents that would, you know, say that their child has a huge emotional outburst or, you know, they're they're breaking something in the house. And we would say, you know, you have to call the local community behavioral health, whatever, service. And they would say, you know, we started calling them like a year ago, but they never did anything. So we have stopped reporting this and we're just feel like we're on our own. And as much as I totally have compassion for that, we would give advice like you have to call every single time because they work off a triage system. So if you're not calling, they have assumed the problem went away. So it is not to call to get help. Unfortunately, it is to call to document. So even though it's so hard for these parents to call the police on their children, if there's something that their behavior has escalated to the point where it could be, you know, warrant police intervention, we even advocate for that. And I'll tell you why. It's because it allows us to make a good case when we say this kid needs services, services above and beyond what they're getting now, and you can document, hey, look, we have called over 200 times in the last two years the community be- community-based mental health, and we have called the police five times. That starts ramping it up within that community and gets the child up the list as far as services. So almost the worst thing you can do, even though you feel like it's hopeless calling and takes times out of out of your day, one of the best things you can do is just document, document, document. And a post-adoption case manager often will do that for you or will at least give you that advice and then will sit on interdisciplinary teams like that post-adoption case manager will sit um, on a mental health, say you do get a caseworker for mental health and you get a a psychiatrist or whatever you get, that post-adoption case manager will sit at those tables and advocate for what the child needs. I also spend a lot of times going in and uh, going to IEP meetings or going into the school and really educating the different teachers on what trauma is and why the child's behavior needs a certain intervention rather than like a punitive, uh, we sent him to the principal's office. He still isn't doing what he said he would do. So I would sit there and, you know, give them some advice. There was one uh, situation specifically where they kept, the school kept complaining about a kid and said he has no remorse. We're really worried about him. He just did all this stuff to the bathroom and he's been sitting in a room and he won't even admit that he did it. And I went in and I was like, oh, wow, this sounds crazy. And there was a special ed team was there. The parents were there. The principal was there. And I was there. And I said, you know, what was his day like before now. And they said, well, you know, he's been bad all day. Like he came in and he was bouncing off his chair. He didn't bring a pencil, even though we've told him to bring a pencil every day. He didn't bring his pencil. So we gave him a pencil. Well, not 10 minutes later, that pencil was broken into little pieces all over his desk. He was chewing on his collar. Then he wasn't able to stay in his seat. He was all over the place, hanging off the side of the seat. And I was like, wow, great. So that's so much observation and really helpful for me. And I was like, this kid, it sounds like he was really trying to hold it together. And he was doing every coping mechanism he knew to try to be good and try to sit in that seat. And 
Finally, he wasn't able to hold it together anymore, and he went to the bathroom, and he ripped everything off the wall and, you know, took the tampons out of the packages, whatever that kid did that day. Um, And he doesn't know what he did necessarily. He certainly doesn't know why. Like, he was dysregulated to the point where he was having to deal with the emotions in his body in an external way. And it was really, I, I was telling the teachers, it will be easier for all of us if we can be super attuned to those little things we see, like bouncing on the chair, uh, chewing the chewing the collar. If we can get attuned to small things and we can start to see, okay, we're, he's showing us that he's having a hard time, and then we can assign you know, one teacher that he goes and checks in with at the special ed office or whatever, hey, do you... Will you go check in with Miss Lawrence and you just send him on his way and he can walk down there and come back and regulate himself. So there were, there were a lot of things that I did in the education system. So post-adoption caseworkers I think are awesome. And I just like thinking that parents have some resources, uh, after the fact, after adoption is final. But it wasn't uh, all great. So this was the first job that I had straight out of college. So I honestly had no clue that I even wanted to go into foster care or adoption or anything like that. But it was the only job that was hiring. And it was like twelve seventy-five an hour or something. And I remember sitting in the interview and I told stories. My, my cousins, I have two cousins that were adopted out of foster care. And they were actually abused in their foster home and one of my little cousins had like third degree burns she had been burned for peeing her pants and the other one was abused by foster parents and they were both diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder so I had known some of the issues that kids with reactive attachment disorder had and understood the struggles that my aunt had to go through raising those kids so I think that's what got me the job because I had some experience with kids that had a diagnosis that had to do with attachment and trauma of early, uh, early childhood. So I was hired, but I also remember that one of the first families that I met with sat me down. They had five adopted kids and I met with them to talk about one of their children. And I asked, how old is she? And the dad like flew off the handle and was like, you don't even know how old my daughter is. He's like, we came, we spent all this time driving into the office and you, how, how many days old are you in this system? Let me tell you something. If you died tomorrow, I wouldn't come to your funeral. And I'm like, okay. Um, hi, you know, my name's Rebecca. So, uh, I remember him being, super aggressive but I also remember thinking wow like this adoptive dad cares so much about his kids and he's super frustrated by the turnover of social workers he doesn't care about anything besides what progress we're going to be able to make and what progress we've lost by now having a new social worker in my position so I went to my supervisors to let them know what had happened and they were like we heard him yelling at you in there are you okay and I told them well he just seems like a really passionate dad that cares about his kids and they were like okay you're gonna do great in this field if that's what you took out of that so I was feeling pretty confident after that interaction but I remember mistakes too like one time I was at a home visit and I was playing with one of the little girls on my caseload 
And I don't know, we were just having normal, like, get to know you conversation. And I said, wow, you must take out, you must take after your dad more because you're so tall and your mom's so short. And she was like, yeah. And then I felt so stupid because she's in her adoptive family's home. So these were not her biological parents. Obviously, she's not going to look like or have the genetics of her adoptive parents. So um, that was just me like realizing how insensitive and like unaware and silly I was and green I was. The child didn't seem to notice and I did tell my supervisors afterwards just because I was afraid that I might have like caused some damage or caused her to question why she doesn't look like her parents or trigger her to wish she did. I was nervous that I had caused pain and so I outed myself but that was one situation where I learned from. I remember another time I went to a home visit and the child was there and we were just scheduled we were scheduled to play and I came in and started to try to interact with him and he was really standoffish and started to kind of get nervous and was acting a little silly like you know really giggly and over the top and what I would describe as dysregulated and he was really hanging on to his adoptive parents really tightly and hiding behind them and to the point where they were like come on you need to play with her come on this is your time you need to play with her and he started getting kind of out of control and throwing different things and then crying and then in hysterics and none of us really knew what to do and they were looking at me like okay this is your problem. Like you're the social worker. What should we do? And then it turned quickly to like, listen, he doesn't usually act this bad. And they looked right at me and they were like, can you leave? And so I drove back to the office. I told my supervisors what happened and realized that that child, like the last time he saw a social worker come into his home, he was removed. And I did not do any of the preparation for him. Like, hey, I'm Rebecca. I'm here to help your parents have a better relationship with you. Or I'm here because your parents are your forever parents. And that's what we do at my office is work with forever families. Like, I could have said anything that would make him feel like he wasn't going to be removed. And, or even process with him, like, geez, social workers have been kind of sucky in your life. I promise that I am not going to do what other social workers did. I'm not going to remove you from your parents. I'm here to just hang out with you. Would that be okay? I didn't acknowledge any of his feelings. I didn't acknowledge his experience. I didn't even tell him why I was there. And I learned that it's really important to kind of explain to kids who you are, why they're there, and what's happening. So, Uh, For parents, my advice would be if you're going to a new place, um, letting the kid know like we're at this new place, this is what we're going to do here and then we're going to leave after, like explain the whole thing. Or if you're a program director or if you work with kids like and you're just meeting them, letting them know like, oh, you're going to come every week and I'm going to see you, we're going to do these types of activities and then you're going to go home with your parents. Uh, 
rather than assuming that they know what you're there for, because I really triggered that kid. Like I freaked that kid out and I went back to my supervisor and I was like, I am pretty sure that I just like ruined this kid's life. And I made things horrible for the parents. Like I left in full meltdown and wasn't helpful at all. So I was surprised that they even wanted my services, but I did go back to that house and we processed it. Like I told him I was so sorry for last time and let me tell him what I did and let him, let me tell him about my job and that I'm all for forever families. And that's actually what my job is about. So I was able to smooth that over, but holy smokes, I had a lot of learning to do in that first year. One thing that really helped my learning though, was I was always super introspective. So I totally went to my supervisors and asked them like, this is what's going on for me. This is what's going on for this family. And uh, one of those times is I like did not like one of the moms on my caseload. I felt really bad for the kid. I felt bad that the kid was in her care. The kid didn't like her and she wasn't didn't care about, seemed to not care about any of the therapeutic parenting techniques, was really set on, you know, how she was raised and it was the right way to do it. And I just didn't feel like I was being of help and I really felt bad for the kid. So I started talking to my supervisor and I was like, I just don't like this parent. I don't like spending time with this parent. And she was like, well, let's unpack that because we don't not like people on our caseloads. Like that's not our job. And, you know, she basically gave me a therapy session myself, but we found out that she had very similar qualities to my own mom. And, you know, a lot of moms and daughters have sticky relationships. And although my mom and I have a great relationship, there's definitely things that have been sticky in our past. And this woman reminded me so much of my mom that I couldn't set aside my relationship with my mom and my relationship with this woman. She was triggering me like my mom triggers me and that's called transference. So yay, lucky me. I get to learn a bunch about that and realize that when this person speaks, I actually see them as my own mom and get in these power struggles with them, which is like, so sad for this mom that's on my caseload that expects to have this objective social worker come into her life and give her the respect she deserves and the social worker's like not able to separate her from her own mom like that's sad so I'm glad that I was able to work through that with my supervisor who was awesome and see her and my mom as separate people but that happens like that's the thing is We're working with social workers that we expect something out of or our healthcare workers or our police officers or, you know, whoever we work with that we expect a certain level of professionalism, a certain level of training. And we're really dealing with humans, right? We're dealing with people that bring all their own stuff. And I feel like you're not going to be an effective caregiver, social worker, therapist, a person that serves other people if you are not constantly working on your own stuff, like what you bring to the table um, and not really open to all the mistakes you make and that it's a learning experience. And I can't say enough about the environment I was in because they allowed me to come and lay all of my mistakes at their feet and they appreciated me being introspective and learning Uh, But I could see in an environment where had I went to a supervisor and said, I really don't like this mom, and they rolled their eyes and said, yeah, I don't like her either, that would have been 
probably wouldn't have allowed me to do the work that I needed to do at that time to realize how I was contributing to the negativity in that relationship. So a lot of it was supervision or having a positive environment in which I could learn. So there was so much in that first year. But some of the big, big lessons I've learned. So there's two big lessons that I learned that I think I just, they're the crux of like what I lean on today. So there were a lot of parents that I was frustrated with that heard what I said, but didn't do it. Um, didn't really understand therapeutic parenting, didn't understand the impact that trauma had on their kids and continued to do things like every time I would show up, they would report everything their kid had done wrong. And they would tell the kid, like, tell Miss Rebecca what you did. Tell her what you did this week. She lied about this. She stole from school. She's been hoarding food. She knocks down her younger sister. It would just be, they would report. So then the child, which I had learned that trauma causes shame and they already feel worthless. The child would be sitting there getting reported on, feeling less and less and less. And now I am not seen as an ally or somebody that's there to help them, but just somebody that learns about how shitty they are. So I would go into that situation and I would try to tell parents like, okay, can you tell me one positive thing? But there were some parents that just wouldn't do that. And I got so frustrated and I went back to my supervisor and I was like, these parents don't get it. If they just did this, then the whole situation would be different. If they just loved that child, if they could just realize that that child came from abuse, if they could just understand that they need to be non-punitive. And my supervisor said to me, Rebecca, you need to realize that these parents have been through a bunch of stuff themselves. They have dealt with this kid possibly, you know, lying or doing things in their home that none of us would be okay with. They have gone through this whole struggle. Maybe they're grieving an ideal family that they weren't able to have. And you are not giving them the same benefit of the doubt that you're giving the kids. You're not understanding what their trauma history is. You're not going in and understanding where they're coming from. So I started doing just that. I started loving the parents just like I love the kids. And I would respond to them in an empathetic way. Like when they would say, the kid's done this, 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 and this, I would say, oh my gosh, like that must be so tough. Just like when a kid says to me how bad their parent is, that must be so tough, right? Because we need to acknowledge what they're going through. We can't just disagree with them. Uh, we have to validate their feelings if they're going to touch them and then be able to move on from them. I might do something like, hey, can we... When we're not going to do reporting right in front of the kid because it's not helpful for my work. Uh, but I do want you to report to me what's been frustrating for you. So let's set up a time separately to hang out with just you and me and let you vent and get everything off your chest. And then once they told me all of these horrible things that their kid did that week, right? And I'm like, wow, this is tough. This is so tough. What would she do if you did this? So rather than me saying, you should try this or do this technique. I would always ask, what would she do if you tried this? Because I wanted to honor the fact that they are the parent. I don't know because how many times have you, like somebody might say about your kid, like, 
oh, well, you should just give her, you know, a snack bin that she can choose her own snacks out of and that'll solve things because it worked for me. And it's like, okay, well, when it's a snack bin, she still grabs it and comes to me and asks me to open it and whatever. It doesn't work for my family. So you want to hear what works for their family. So I would always say, what would she do if you tried this? And then she'd go, oh, well, she wouldn't, she, she wouldn't do that. Or she would cry. Or, um, I don't know, I've never tried that. And so we would go through a list of what we could possibly do. And when we got to something that they hadn't tried or that they would be willing to try, then I'd say, okay, well, let's try that. Like, just try it once while I'm gone and let's see what happens. I have no clue. It might be a complete disaster, but let's try. We're, we're kind of in this together, right? So then I would come back the next time and we would work on it together. It might have not worked. It might have, oh, she, she tried that and it worked for two days, but now she's onto it. She doesn't, she doesn't, it doesn't work. And then I could talk to the kids separately and I would hear the same things, you know, their, their issues with their parents, how they weren't fair, how they didn't understand them, how they think that they're just being bad, but they really have these high expectations of them. And, and I would acknowledge that. And then I would ask them, what would your mom do if you asked her this? And they'd go, oh, I haven't tried it that way. And we could work through it that way. So one of my biggest, biggest lessons that I took out of all my post-adoption work was to love on the parents as you do the kids and to realize that every single person you encounter is worth the same respect and understanding and compassion and empathy as any other person. There isn't like the parents or versus the kids or the school board, which needs to learn or, uh, you know, the community mental health, they need to learn or this therapist needs to learn. Like if we go in and we approach each one like they're humans and we can have this like empathy and compassion for each person, then we can usually make some headway, right? Okay. So that was one of my biggest lessons. My other biggest lesson was really a therapeutic parenting technique that I ha came across in like almost every single home. And it was so frustrating how many parents do this. And you know what? This is not related to foster and adoption, although I think it happens more because they feel so bad that they kind of um, lean on the lenient side of things. But it is disengaging or parents engaging with a kid or allowing negotiations. So I got this over and over again, basically just teaching parents how to disengage, like to give an objective or give a directive and following through. So I, and I wonder sometimes if it's because I was a social worker there and they didn't want to be like too stern, but so many times I would go into a home and they would say like, okay, you need to pick up your toys before we move on to the next activity. And they would start just moving on to the next activity. And they're like, hey, you're not going to be able to play that next activity unless you pick up your toys. And then the kid just starts playing the next activity. And they're like, did you hear me? I'm about to come in there and I'm about to take away what you're playing with if you don't go back. I'm getting closer. Are you going to make the right choice? And I'm like, for God's sakes, follow through. Walk in, stop the new activity, tell them to pick up their toys. If they don't, 
then follow through with whatever the consequence is. Put the new activity away. You're done. You can do whatever you want, but you're not going to do the next activity. And this engaging, like wanting to engage, 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 engage was like, I hear it from so and see it from so many parents. And it's just not helpful because you're teaching the child to that they have a place to negotiate and that they can do like 45 draw out this thing for 45 minutes uh, that doesn't need to take that long. So I might have told this story before, but I'm so I'm going to tell it again because it's so illustrative of of this topic. But I had a parent that we were up in the sticks. So, you know, there's in Vermont, this area was so rural that it might take like a crisis worker two hours to get to them. No joke. So I understand that they might have engaged a lot to try to like tamper the situation and not have to rile this child up because if it got too big, they weren't going to be able to deal with it and they were going to be alone for two hours before crisis teams could get there. So I understand where they were coming from. But this one kid was um, starting to act up, right? And starting to throw things and yell and the parents were like, don't do that. Don't yell. You're going to take, you're going to not be able to go into town with us later if you keep doing this. And then the kid continues to yell, continues to throw things. They keep saying the thing. So I had to show them. I said to the kid, I said, Christian, if you, you obviously are not ready to move on from this activity, when you are ready, I'm going to know because you're going to have your bottom in this seat and you're going to be drawing on this piece of paper. And then I disengaged. I said nothing. And the parent, and he started throwing things still. He was pushing the table. He was laughing in my face. And the parents were like, you need to sit at the table. You need, and I looked at them and I said, no, no directives. We're done talking. He already knows. He knows exactly what he needs to do and he can do whatever he wants to do, but we're not moving on until his butt's in the seat. But we are disengaging at this point. And so we were silent. I even told the parents to turn their back on him. Like, do not give him any of the attention that he's wanting for this bad behavior. So he goes to the kitchen or whatever and he gets pepperonis and he starts throwing pepperonis at my face. I turn away And like, I could feel the parents crawling out of their skin because they just wanted to tell him like, just sit in the chair, just sit in the chair, maybe. And they wanted to say things like, you'll get ice cream after if you sit in the chair. Like they were just so uncomfortable with the in-between of just letting him freak out, uh, melt down, whatever he needed to do. And I was like, completely no emotion. I was just like, I'm not engaging with you while you're like this. I'll let you be dysregulated for as long as you need to be, but you're not going to engage me in it. So he got really mad, like through the vacuum, broke the vacuum, was throwing chairs. We had to like hide. Um, And then he goes outside. So I did want to keep eyes on, but I was like, we are walking way far behind. Like we don't even want him to see that we're seeing what he's doing. We are ignoring So he did everything he did to get, could do to get our attention. Like he jumped on the tractor, which was like a lawnmower and started riding it all around. Mind you, he's like seven or eight. And I was like, God help us. We are not intervening. And I knew this little farm boy, like he could run it, 
but he was whipping in drive, ripping it into the reverse, spinning the tires, like making mud go everywhere. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, please don't let this end in an injury where I am totally liable because I told them not to intervene. But I just knew we had to make it like we had to stand our ground because these parents have never seen that happen. He starts throwing rocks at the windows. Okay, so eventually he like slowly comes in the house like this is like an hour later or I want to say like an hour and a half slowly comes in the house and like sits next to the chair and puts his elbow on the seat of the chair and only at this point because I want to make sure he remembers the directive did I say wow it looks like you're almost ready to move on I will know when you sit your butt in the chair and you're drawing on the piece of paper And he kind of gave me like a "Mm," face, like you're stupid. And like, you know, sat there not getting in the chair. But now I knew he remembered the directive. I said it one more time. We probably sat for another 20 minutes. He slowly got up on the chair, but was like halfway in. He got up in the chair and ripped up the piece of paper, broke all the crayons. Finally, he grabbed a piece of paper, started drawing. And I was like, cool. We're ready to move on now. And I ignored everything he, I ignored all of the stuff and I didn't process that with him because I didn't feel like that was the time. What I did say is before we move on, we need to pick up your mess. And I was like, I bet, it, I bet you can't do it in 10 seconds. And I ran and he ran and we cleaned up his mess. And then I did say, can you tell your parents that you're sorry for the mess? And he looked and he said, sorry. And then we moved on. So we were able to do repair of the relationship. He was able to listen and it wasn't this constant thing. That's what happens if you let this get out of control, right? So the disengaging thing, I think already, like I'm seeing it. I'm a new parent, right? I have a a 15 month old and he's already starting to like scream and he wants to be picked up. So he screams. And at first my response was like, Oh my gosh, what do you need? And I'd pick him right up. Like you're so loud, but I stopped. I was like, no, we are not getting picked up if, if you're loud. And what I had to make sure I did though, is when he screamed, I ignored it. But the second he wasn't screaming and asking me to pick him up, like with his hands, I needed to make sure I swooped in and did what I said I was going to do or pick him up to show him that's how we ask. So I know that this seems like typical, like, yeah, reward the good behavior, follow through, blah, blah, blah. But I'm telling you, I saw over and over and over and over again. And I swear that disengaging is harder for parents, foster adoptive parents, because they feel like they're being punitive by following through. And I'm here to give you permission. Follow through is not being punitive. Telling a kid, why would you do that? Why would you make a big mess? This is stupid. That is punitive. That's shameful. But saying like, hey, you're dysregulated right now. So I'm going to need you to do this before we can move on without any emotion. That's not punitive. That's being structured. That's giving a kid exactly what they want, which is knowing how far they can push it and who the parent is. And And you need to be the parent. You do need to be the parent. And We need to do that too as caregivers. Structure is so important. A kid needs to know where the boundaries are, what they can get from you, what they can do in front of you, what you'll help them do. 
Um, and if you allow the negotiation, it's just murky. It's just murky. So make everything clear. That's just the big, the, one of the biggest lessons that I absolutely learned. And I swear I could write a book on disengaging, but I see it so often, even with parents negotiating, like for Xbox time, like, um, Hey dude, it's time to get off your Xbox. And he's like 30 minutes and they're like 15, 25. What is that? What is that whole deal? What it, uh, you said, get off the Xbox. Now, if the kid came back and said 30 minutes and the parent said, you can have five more minutes to wrap up your game, okay. There's a little negotiation there. I get it. Maybe the kid doesn't want to, like, shut it off immediately. But this whole, like, I'm going to keep asking for more and it's never what you say goes, ain't not helpful. And you're really making uh, problems for yourself later. And I'll tell you, if this is a service provider listening, you definitely have to set the right example for parents, right? And set good boundaries so that they can see that you're willing to do it and that they can do it, empower them to be able to do it. I also learned early that we are all human. Life is messy. It's not my job to fix things. And I think as mentors, service providers, parents, we feel like our role is to fix things. And I think that this is why we intervene so quickly. We don't like to disengage because we don't like people being upset. You know, I know that when I'm on a car ride with my son, like I sit there sweating the moment that he's going to wake up and cry, like, cause crying can't happen because he needs to be happy in the car. And I don't know if that's just a mom thing or if I'm weak, but I get this like, oh, if we could just fix everything, if everybody could be happy, but it's not, it's not my job to make sure he never cries. Uh, It's not our job to make sure that people don't have problems. It is our job as parents, as service providers, to be in the thick of it with parents, with kids, with people, to be in the thick, to just sit there and say, yes, this sucks. I know, honey, this is tough. I know, I get it, this is tough. One thing that was tough that I had to walk parents through was making reports. Like advocating that parents make reports on themselves to Department of Children and Families. Like their kid would accidentally get hit with a, I remember one mom like was throwing a bottle into the recycling and her kid's like head just happened to pop in front of it and her glasses broke and she got a black eye from it. And these were kids that were used to making reports and the schools knew about these kids and they were used to making reports. So the mom called and said, this is going to be awful. I know I'm going to have a report made against me tomorrow. And I would hold their hand and say, well, let's go report it first. There's no better situation you can be in than when Department of Children and Families gets that call about a report against you that you've already made the report of what happened. And so That was like one of those situations where I couldn't fix it, but let's be proactive and let's be in this together. Um, There was even a mom that actually hit their daughter. Like she actually happened to be like a school counselor and she knew all of this stuff. She had more schooling than I did and she had adopted two daughters and she lost her cool. A daughter called her a bitch in the car and she popped the daughter and she called me and she said, I'm pretty sure I need to make a report because I know that she's going to report that I hit her. And, you know, she was nervous that it would affect her job, that it could affect a lot of things. And she just felt a lot of shame because she knew 
she thought that she knew how to cope with parenting stress better because she was a therapist. She was a school therapist. So I helped her make the report against herself and, you know, it all worked out. But I just learned that we're all messy. All human life is messy. And you're, you're choosing to jump in people's messes. So how inappropriate is it, is it of any of us to choose to jump into people's messes and then judge it while we're, we're there or make somebody feel shame while we're there or not be completely open and empathetic and compassionate once we're there. Somebody's like letting you in to their mess. And I don't know about you, but there's plenty of messes in my life that I don't care to have anybody know about. And if I'm going to let somebody in, God, I would hope that person would normalize that for me. I would hope they would ha- be empathetic and tell me it's, it's going to be okay, you know? So we have to be that person. So if you're going to choose to go into people's messes, choose to do it in a way that is only empathetic and has nothing to do with you or your ego, but it has to do with them and you're really being of service. So that's my post-adoption experience in a nutshell. As always, I hope this gave you all a little bit of a different perspective, regardless if you are program directors, foster parents, adoptive parents, biological parents, I think these lessons could be helpful for anyone in this space. Next week, we will be talking to someone who works to create policy in the Department of Children and Families. So this is super exciting because this isn't a caseworker on the ground. This is somebody that actually works in policy in the place that you would think that we could make the most change. And we're going to get to hear from them about how you make that change, all the bureaucracy that goes with it, the red tape, all the, the... complexities of policy in the work. So I am excited to bring that to you. I hope you guys stay safe and stay well. See you next week.